Welcome to the podcast for Icon Church. We're in a series on the Gospel of John titled Witness to the Light, and following the sermon, you'll hear the weekly Q&A. We are in John chapter 2 this morning, if you want to turn to John 2. We are continuing in our John series that will take us through Easter, and uh, John is uh, doing something interesting here that we started to talk about last week where he's juxtaposing two stories uh, about Jesus to give us a picture of who he is, right? So last week, we looked at the, what I called the gratuitous grace of Jesus, and we'll talk about why I use that word gratuitous, and I'm sticking to it. Uh, And then this week, talking about kind of the other side of Jesus, which is the seriousness with which he deals with sin and how he thinks about sin and talks about sin and acts on our sin. And so these two things put together by John, kind of literarily, uh, is meant to set the stage for a couple of interactions that we're gonna see in the immediate aftermath of these two stories. He's gonna talk to Nicodemus, and then he's gonna talk to a, a Samaritan woman. And this, these two narratives put together are meant to be the frame for us to understand his conversations then with Nicodemus and this woman. So. We want to put these two things together the same way John wants us to see them, to see not just two halves of Jesus in the sense that he's, you know, moving in and out, but how that they are really inextricably tied to one another, and you cannot understand one without the other, and in fact, can't understand Jesus without both at the same time, okay? So last week, Jesus turned water into wine at a wedding, Uh, This wedding was going pretty well. Jesus and his disciples were there. His mom's there. They run out of wine. Catastrophe, right? Like, uh, it's a catastrophe for us today. Uh, If that were to happen back then, even bigger deal. We talked about this. uh, I quoted from a commentator who just went a little crazy uh, with his description of how much of a crisis this was. I mean, real nightmare uh, situation for them. And uh, and so what, what we kind of tried to draw our attention to in this moment is, couple things. One, that the grace of Jesus is not just about these big ideas about sin and eternity and, and, you know, like the depth of our brokenness and, and redeeming all of creation, that the grace of Jesus actually even gets down into the details of wine at weddings, right? That, that, Jesus cares about and his grace extends to even the smallest details in our life. So I encourage you guys to continue to pray for parking spots or start to pray for parking spots if you haven't already, especially here in Beacon Hill in the mornings where we don't have any parking. You should be praying all the way here, fasting for parking spots because the grace of Jesus extends even into the details. So it gets down into the details and also overwhelms us in its quantity. So Jesus not just didn't just solve this problem and provide the wine, but he provided really, really good wine to the confusion of everyone involved. Why are you bringing out the good wine at the end when everybody's drunk is literally what it says. But on top of that, he provided way more than they even needed. He gave them between 120 and 130 gallons of really good wine, which didn't just solve their problem, but one commentator actually says would have set them up kind of financially. This was like a a wedding present from Jesus to these people, not that they were all of a sudden in the wine distribution business, but that this would have like tided the family over for a really long time. So Jesus' grace doesn't only get into the details, but it's, it's over the top, right? It solves the problem and more. With sin 
and, and the grace of Jesus in our lives, the same thing is true. That there is no sin in our lives, no, nothing so small or nothing so big. There's literally nothing about us that the grace of Jesus doesn't cover right? There is no sin. And as we, uh, I know some of us uh, tend to kind of minimize sin and not think it's that big a deal. Some of us have sin in our lives. Some of us have things in our background that we look back on and go, man, I, I don't know. I don't know if Jesus can cover that one, right? Like this, this was big. This was dark. This was heinous. This, this messed up a lot of things. I don't know if the grace of Jesus can actually cover over this sin. Some of us have that moment in our lives or moments in our lives, decisions that we've made that had these massive ramifications and they're a hangout for us that maybe we wouldn't say that explicitly out loud. I'm not sure if Jesus can cover this sin, but we consistently feel the weight of that sin even though Jesus' grace has covered over it. Right? So that there is no sin that grace can't or won't cover over. Right, like You're not that good at sinning. Okay, I, I know most of you, you're really good at sinning, but you're not that good, right? Like you're not so powerful in your sin that you can overcome the grace of God. So here's the final verdict. Nothing you do can make God love you less and nothing you do can make God love you more. You hear that? Hear that. There is nothing you do. I, I tell my kids this all the time. There is nothing you can do. There is nothing you have done that can make God love you even one, one millionth of one percent less or one, one millionth of one percent more. You don't have that control. God's love is for you, has always been for you, and it is manifest most clearly on the cross. And that moment is done. So that's our final verdict. That's, that's the place where we begin when it comes to the grace of God, that it overflows, that extends into every crack and crevice in our lives, and that it transforms and empowers us beyond what we could ever imagine or deserve. Now, we have to cling to this idea. This is our, our very hope. It's for some of us what gets us up in the morning, but... None of it matters, none of it matters if we don't also understand how much God hates sin. None of it matters. The grace, this overwhelming grace of God will not matter even one bit if you don't understand how much God hates sin because you will have no access to the grace of God if you don't first deal with the reality of your sin. So this is the, this is the other side. This is what we see in this second story today where Jesus is gonna go into the temple in Jerusalem, make a, a whip out of cords and overthrow the temple and push people out. We'll see all the detail here. And, and, and it is his picture of Jesus' zeal, his hatred, his passion about sin. Now, I wanna make one little comment just at like a, a textual level here before we get into it. This story in John is at the beginning of the gospel. 
John is the only one who puts it at the beginning of the gospel. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all put this story at the end of Jesus' ministry, one of the final things that he does. And so commentators are kind of mixed about why John puts this at the beginning. And there's two main options here. One is that Jesus did this twice, right? That John records the first time Jesus did it. Matthew, Mark, and Luke record the second time Jesus did it. And maybe there were more times. Maybe Jesus was always whipping fools and, and it, you know, only, only once per gospel was it uh, recorded. Who knows? I'd like to think that personally. But this is a question. Was it that, jo- that Jesus did this more than once and John records the first and Matthew, Mark, and Luke record the second? Or that this is a kind of literary device that John's using, and he's moving the story that happened at the end, moving it to the beginning to give us a frame for who Jesus is. And I am no Bible scholar, but I am convinced that it is the latter, not the former, that Jesus was actually very conservative about whipping fools and only did it once in, I just love that phrase so much, uh, <laughs> but that uh, he only did it once in his ministry. And John is, uh, from a literary perspective, moving this to the front to give us a frame. Now, for some of us, that's troubling, right? The idea that John would move events around to suit some larger literary purpose, but it really shouldn't bother us, right? It probably, and I don't know all of you, but it probably only bothers us if we have what I would say is honestly just kind of an incorrect uh, vision of what the Bible is trying to do and how the Bible is put together. So each of the gospel writers, and uh, on top of that, each of the authors of Scripture, each of the human authors of Scripture have very clear intentions for why they they are writing their books of the Bible. Right? They're writing to very specific audiences on very specific occasions in very specific times and places for very specific purposes. John told us this. We already looked at this in John chapter 20. John says there's a ton of other things that Jesus did, so many things that probably all the libraries in the world couldn't contain all of the words that could be written about Jesus. But he says, I have chosen these that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, and by believing you might have life in his name. John's not, John's not trying to pretend like he's doing one thing and then secretly doing another. He is ordering this story. He is writing this memoir. He is writing this reflection on Jesus' life to show us who Jesus is. So yeah, I think he took a story that actually happened at the end of Jesus' life, put it in the beginning to frame this thing up so that we go, okay, Jesus is over the top, crazy, gracious, and at the same time takes really seriously sin and brokenness in the world. And these two things have to be held together in order to understand the rest of who Jesus is and what he did and what he said and ultimately how his life climaxed on the cross. Does that make sense? I, I want to say the reason I, I chose to say that is mostly because I think a lot of times we, we are not taught how to read the Bible and how to understand the Bible. And so we find ourselves at times in these places in, in a workplace environment or in a school environment where some teacher or coworker or somebody who's read one book says, uh, well, you know, like John's mixing things up just to, that's not actually where that happened. And John doesn't actually agree with Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So something like this will show up in the like contradictions in the Bible kind of articles and books that people write and read. And it's not. 
This is in no way a contradiction that John puts it at the beginning, what Matthew, Mark, and Luke put at the end. They're writing for different purposes. Okay, so us being able to understand how books like this are put together helps us understand not only Jesus and what's going on in the gospel, but also helps us kind of have a framework for understanding what some other people might be saying about the Bible. You with me? Okay, let's get into our story. John 2, verse 13. It says, the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Um, It's interesting when we come across stories like this, how we respond to them kind of emotionally, right? And and I, I don't know how you respond to this kind of a story emotionally, but it was interesting to read kind of a, I, I read a wide variety of commentators from hyper, hyper conservative to hyper, hyper liberal to all over the map, geographically and culturally. And, and it's super interesting how different authors deal with stories like this. Some really embrace this idea of the Jesus who's putting together a whip and driving animals and people out of the temple with this zeal for his father's house and for worship and all that, and others who really go bending over backwards to try to explain away this moment and try to explain away the passion and zeal that Jesus had. One commentator went so far as to say that basically he, he uh, put together a whip of rushes, so like plants and like bushes basically, and put together this whip, and it says, but he dared not use it. Nuh-uh. That's not what's happening here. Jesus is not picking up grass and shaking it at people. This is not what's happening, right? Like that wouldn't drive away sheep. She'd be like, great food, right? Like that, that wouldn't accomplish what is happening here. So I, I want us to stare this full in the face that Jesus took a bunch of cords or ropes or something that was lying on the ground, formed it into a whip and started whipping fools, Right? started whipping animals and people, whether he's actually whipping people on their backs or something, I cannot say. But, <laughs> but he is driving them out forcibly from the temple. Like that, this is serious. We have to stare this in the face that this is what was happening. Now, we have to understand what's going on here culturally, right? So people would travel to the temple from all over the, the world, but relatively near world in those days. They were walking great distances or riding camels great distances uh, to get to the temple to make sacrifices. Now, there were certain expectations and certain laws surrounding what could be sacrificed, what had to be sacrificed, and some, some of that was sheep and pigeons and doves and all kinds of animals that had to be sacrificed for certain different deals. Now, there was also a very specific coinage that had to be, the temple tax had to be paid in. And so if you lived in a different area that had different kind of money, you had to come and exchange your money for the kind of money that was appropriate for the temple, okay? So what was happening here in this moment was not inappropriate in and of itself. 
right? This, the, people had to, rather than bring a sheep with them from wherever, Pialop, uh, they, uh, they would bring money, show up at the temple, purchase a sheep, and then go into the temple and sacrifice. This made total sense, okay? And, and so what was happening that, that uh, really bothered Jesus enough to make this whip and drive people out was two things. One, that history tells us that the, uh, the, those in charge of the temple were t- kind of taxing people at exorbitant rates. So for instance, in order to change the money from the whatever local currency to the currency that they needed, that they would charge up to a day's wages in fees in order to just exchange money, okay? That the high priest, a man named Annas, was known to be um, kind of franchising out tax collecting booths and franchising out the ability to say which animals were okay and which were not okay, which was a position of great power uh, that caused a lot of kind of underhanded dealing to be happening. So that's one part of it. And one historian actually described the temple as the bazaars of Annas, B-A-Z-A-A-R-S, bazaars of Annas that this was, a, this was basically a marketplace that they were making a ton of money off of on the side, okay? So that really bothered Jesus. But the other thing that bothered Jesus is where this was taking place. So it says Jesus comes into the temple and where he is is called the courtyard for the Gentiles. And this is where all of the non-Jews would come to worship God. Gentiles who had been converted to Judaism, who wanted to worship God, would come into this kind of outer courtyard to worship, to sing, to pray, to have a legitimate like this kind of worship experience. And in that place, these high priests and his minions were doing trade and on top of that, a dishonest trade. The Jews had lost a sense of seriousness. They had lost a sense of privilege of what it means to worship God. They had lost a sense of the holiness of God, what it means to be in the presence of God. And they had been very myopic in their application of the law in the sense that they were doing business where the Gentiles were. They weren't doing it where the Jews worshiped. So there was a racial and cultural aspect to this as well, that the Jews were making a priority of their own worship while marginalizing those who were not Jews. And Jesus goes, man, nothing about this is okay. Nothing about this lack of seriousness about being in the presence of God is okay. You've turned what ought to be this worshipful moment of the holy God into a a marketplace where you've got lambs and pigeons and their smells weird and they're, they're, they're exchanging money and so it's noisy and loud and chaotic and people in the midst of that are supposed to be worshiping. They had just completely lost a sense of the seriousness of what was supposed to be happening in that moment. A.W. Tozer, in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, speaks to this issue saying this. He says, with our loss of the sense of majesty has come the further loss of religious awe and consciousness of the divine presence. We have lost our spirit of worship and our ability to withdraw inwardly to meet God in adoring silence. Modern Christianity is simply not producing the kind of Christian who can appreciate or experience the life in the spirit. 
The words, be still and know that I am God, mean next to nothing to the self-confident, bustling worshiper in this middle period of the 20th century. There is a sense in which we um, consume our worship as we consume just about everything else in our lives. Where even this experience right here becomes um, something other than an attempt or a desire to be in the presence of God, to worship his name, to sit humbly under the scriptures, to gather with other believers for fellowship and mutual encouragement and conviction, to be a, a light, a collective witness to the greatness and glory of the gospel. Often we attend worship services with a litany of other priorities in mind, other desires that we are coming to have met, criteria by which we choose which worship experience we are going to make ours, which we prefer. Man, I, I see this in my own preaching. I've noticed this week and was, was really honestly convicted about this. That in my preaching, oftentimes I talk about God and I talk about the gospel as if you should come to God for life. That you should come to God, that you should submit your life to Jesus, submit yourself to Jesus because of the life that he can offer you, this eternal life, this abundant life, the life that you were made for, that he can offer that to you. Now, is that wrong? No, it's not wrong, but it's second. If we come to God for life, we are using God to get life. If we come to God for peace, we are using God to get peace. If we come to God for blessing, we are using God to get blessing. If we come to God for an answered prayer, for, for provision, for a job, for a relationship, we are using God for that thing, which makes that thing ultimately the God that we serve. Whatever, whatever request that thing makes of us, we will do. So if that, we think that, that that thing is asking us to come to God in order to get it, we'll come to God. But the moment we think that that thing, that job, that person, that idea, that blessing is going to ask of us something else, we do it. And so we cut corners at work. We do what we want to do for our own happiness, the moment we're convinced that what would make us happiest is no longer God but this other thing, we pivot very quickly into that other thing because what we ultimately want is happiness, not God. God is the lever we pull to get the thing that we want. And I, I see that in my own preaching and so I, I repent to you now in this place for any time that I have led you to believe that the greatest reason to come to God is for the things that God would give you or the, the result of your coming to God. None of those things are false. I don't think I've told you anything that's not true. But if we come to God for something, we are coming really for that something. Rather, we ought to come to God for God. And then we know 
that there is much to come after that. We know that if we come to God, that there is in the presence of God blessing and joy and peace and all of these things. But if we come for those things, we're getting it wrong. Now, this may seem like semantics to you, but it's not. And let me give you an illustration of this. When I was in high school, um, there was a, a girl in our church, in our youth ministry, who was great. She was fantastic. She was uh, a volleyball player, like a national level volleyball player. She was my age, really sweet girl, loved the Lord. She was about six feet tall, right? She was a volleyball player, like a legit one. And, uh, and, and my dad would make comments to me all the time about how she was great. And I'm like, yeah, she is great. Like, I totally agree, dad. Why do you say that? And he just go, I don't know. I mean, she's pretty tall. I was like, yeah, it's true. I've noticed she's tall. He was like, well, you know, like, if you marry a tall girl, you probably have tall kids. I'm like, that's probably true, Dad. Is this a genetics lesson that I'm getting here? Or get, let's drive at the point. He says, well, I'm just saying, like, you're pretty athletic. She's pretty athletic. You're pretty tall. She's pretty tall. If you got married, I don't know, maybe you'd have athletes, and then they would grow up to be Major League Baseball players, and we'd all be rich. I don't know. <laughs> so, you know, I look back on that now. My dad was very subtle about it. I love my dad. He was not pressuring this at all. I mean, he set us up on a couple of blind dates, but it was beside the point. There was, there was a strategic marrying idea going on here that I could marry this girl not because I loved her, not because I wanted to spend the rest of my life with her, not, not for her, but for what she might be able to provide for my dad in terms of grandchildren. <laughs> But it, it got the cart before the horse. It, it mixed up. There was nothing wrong with that idea, but it, it, it's using a person for a thing. It's not different. See, when we aren't serious about sin, we aren't serious about God. John Piper, whom I love for so many things and not for others, but John Piper says this about sin. He says, what is sin? It is the glory of God not honored, the holiness of God not revered, the greatness of God not admired, the power of God not praised, the truth of God not sought, the wisdom of God not esteemed, the beauty of God not treasured, the goodness of God not savored, the faithfulness of God not trusted, the commandments of God not obeyed, the justice of God not respected, the wrath of God not feared, the grace of God not cherished, the presence of God not prized, the person of God not loved. This is sin. When we're not serious about sin, we're not serious about God. Jesus walked into the temple and saw a whole bunch of people who were not serious about God, and as a result, they sinned against him. And they sinned against their brothers, the Gentile believers who so desired just to be in the presence of God and to worship together, and they set it up as a, a place of commerce because they weren't serious about God. Jesus continues, verse 18. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. 
When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So Jesus comes in and drives all these people and all these animals out, creates an absolute disaster for the Jews and they come to him and go, hey, what are you doing? Who do you think you are? By what power, by what authority do you think you can just mess up our whole thing? Who are you that you can condemn us for what we have done? And Jesus says, listen, the only sign I'm going to give you, and and clearly they didn't get it, and I think Jesus loves that they didn't get it because he's just messing with their heads. But, But he says, the only sign that you're going to get that I can do this is that I am willing to die and I will die to right these wrongs, all the wrongs. Not just the wrongs of the temple, not just the wrongs of these these kind of commerce-making priests, but I will right all the wrongs. He goes, listen, I am so serious about this. I will be the solution. We can tell how seriously Jesus takes sin by looking simply at his remedy for sin. If ever we think that sin is not that big a deal, we ought to simply look at the cross and see that at least for Jesus, sin's a pretty big deal. For God, sin is such a big deal that he sent his son to die because that was the only remedy for it. We can tell just how big a deal something is by the reaction. The cross is either an appropriate response to a deep, deep and profound problem or it is a divine overreaction. I have a kid who overreacts to everything. The thing I say to him or her most often is, chill out. Why are you reacting so strongly to this? I just didn't hear what you said. You mumble. And I didn't hear why are you screaming and running out of the room? You're overreacting to this. This isn't that big a deal. But I tell you what, I have learned that he feels it or she feels it (laughs) as a deep offense against his or her person. And so responds in, in their minds appropriately to what seems like this slight when um, my oldest daughter was born, um, uh, we didn't know what we were doing. Obviously, it was our first kid, and, and uh, uh, she came six weeks. I almost said he or she. No, it's, it's Lily, uh, our first. Uh, she came six weeks premature, so we hadn't even finished like our, our childbirth classes or whatever. So uh, we hadn't gotten to the good part. You know, it was like we had learned everything except what we needed to know, like that happens at the end. And so we were, we were I mean, I had a vague idea, but like we, uh, so my wife was having some, uh, some labor pains, some pre-labor pains, and we had had a friend who uh, had had labor pains, went to the doctor, went to the hospital, spent like three hours just to find out she was in what they call ghost labor, which I just love that term, makes me think she she gave birth to a ghost and that that's what was happening. Um, and, uh, and so we're literally driving to the, car, to, to the hospital and like, and kind of like upset, like, ugh, we got to do this, but we're going to go to the hospital and they're going to tell us it's ghost labor and we're not even going to be able to see it. And then we're going to, we're going to go home and we will have wasted half a day. And, and, uh, and, and so we were like legit annoyed by the baby at this point. <laughs> 
we walk into the hospital and we sit down in the little, uh, I don't know, pre-check room and, um, and, and the doctor comes in and does the little test and, uh, and she goes, oh, sweetheart, you're six centimeters dilated. And I hadn't gotten to the part where they tell me how many you get to. And so I'm like, so I legit said, out of how many exactly? <laughs> and she goes, I like 10. I'm like, uh, so what, do you, what are you saying? She's like, she goes, sweetheart, you're having a baby today. Just like that. Just like that. What seemed to me like a moment of, like, I've seen ER enough times to know, like, what should be happening at this moment. The doctor's rushing in, gas mask on her face, rushing out, uh, the alarm's going off. And this, this nurse is just like, oh, sweetheart, you're going to have a baby today. And I'm like, no, it's sick. No, no, no. That's, that's not, you're not reacting right to what's happening here. There's a massive underreaction to what seemed like a pretty critical moment. Like we can, we, we can tell a lot by the ra- reaction, by the, re- by the proposed remedy. We can also kind of figure out what the problem is and the seriousness of the problem. Jesus goes, sin's a problem so much so that I will die on the cross in order to solve it. So not only when we don't take sin seriously, we don't take God seriously, but when we don't take sin in our life seriously, we don't take Jesus seriously. We don't take the cross seriously. We look at the cross as, a, as an idea, as a symbol, as a thing that happened and it was great and I'm appreciative, but man, we don't look deeply and think deeply and, and internalize the reality of that solution. That God looked at us, more specifically, God looked at you. You. Me. And if it had only just been the one of us, This would have been the solution. This is what it took to satisfy sin is the death of God. The death of Jesus is what it takes to satisfy the problem of sin. So Jesus goes, yeah, I I can come in here and be real serious about your sin and about the temple because I, I got skin in the game. I am going to be the solve to this huge problem. Lastly, verse 23. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Think about what that says and how John is using that little paragraph to set up the rest of his gospel. All of the interactions that Jesus is going to have with every other human has just been framed up in those few sentences. Because here's what this says in, in the Greek, literally. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing, but Jesus on his part did not believe in them entrust himself and believe, same word. It's the same word. Literally, John is using a play on words here to go, hey, Jesus did a bunch of signs and people believed in Jesus, but Jesus didn't believe in them. Why? Because he knew what was inside them. He knew why they were there. He knew what they wanted. 
He knew, he knew the depth of their faith. He knew that, he, that many of them were just coming to him to use him for something else. They saw power. They saw opportunity. They saw wine. They saw a lot of things. But, but Jesus knew. Jesus knew that what was in them was not worth entrusting himself to. He saw the depth of their sin. He saw it clearly. He says, John says that no one needed to tell him what was in a man, that he could see it clearly. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity says this, when a man is getting better, he understands more and more clearly the evil that is still left in him. When a man is getting worse, he understands his own badness less and less. A moderately bad man knows he is not very good. A thoroughly bad man thinks he is all right. This is common sense, really. You understand sleep only when you are awake, not while you are sleeping. You can see mistakes in arithmetic when your mind is working properly. While you are making them, you cannot see them. You can understand the nature of drunkenness when you are sober, not when you are drunk. Good people know about both good and evil. Bad people do not know about either. So Jesus, being the ultimate good person, the only one without sin, could see most clearly what was going on around him. He wasn't fooled by their adoration. He wasn't fooled by the fact that all these people were following him, as I would be. As many of us would be. That if, if a bunch of people were telling us how great we are, we would be tempted to believe them. But only when we see ourselves most clearly, when we see others most clearly, can we see the reality of the situation that whatever people see in us is one but a fraction of the total truth about who we are. And probably what they see in us is what they want from us. And so they cling to us, they come behind us, they surround us, they follow us, they hire us because of what we can do for them. Jesus could see far more clearly than we can. Jesus was under no illusion about who he was dealing with or who he is dealing with, nor does he attempt to coddle us in our own ignorance. The truth is you will never run wholly into the arms of God if you don't understand how damnable you are. You will never be motivated to go to God in worship, in praise, in need, if you don't understand how needy you are. We have to look fully at our own sin and then beneath that sin and beneath that sin and beneath that sin and beneath and beneath and see like our activity, the things that we actually say, the things that we actually do are just the tip of the iceberg of what's happening within us. And so it, it is up to us to continually, as we grow in Christ, to grow in our ability to ask, okay, but what's underneath that? And what's, what's underneath that? Why do I do that? And why do I do that? And why do I do that? And what's motivating that? And, and I know for me, like, I, I have gotten to a place where I go, listen, I, I'll be really honest. I want to be worshipped. That's the truth. I want to be worshipped. I want to be told how great I am. 
It's, it's what's underneath my ambition. It's underneath my, uh, my performance. It's what's underneath what drives me to be great, to be successful, is I want to be worshiped. And how gross does that sound out loud? You can say, very gross, Justin. <laughs> it is. But that's, I know that's what's in me. And it's only when I can come to grips with that and own that that I will go to God and go, God, save me from this disgusting sin that's within me, this desire to be worshipped by my peers, this desire to be God for people so that I will get what only you deserve. We cannot separate grace from truth. They need each other. The truth about ourselves alone would crush us. Grace offered to us alone would go unaccepted because we wouldn't see the need. The harder we look at our own sin, the more we will clamor for and savor his grace. And here's the thing. For those of you who are here and you're not Christians, and, and all of this is hard because it just is, does not jive with what the rest of the world tells us about ourselves. And for those of you who are Christians and are just as seeped in that same idea that you are great and all you need is this little tweak or this one trick or a little more education or all these other people to be eradicated from your life or whatever the problem is, I think if we're honest with ourselves, this makes the best sense of the world around us. Because we have been trying to change and tweak and adjust and remove and add and perform all of our lives and none of it works. And so why would we think that the next little tweak and change and addition or subtraction would be the one that actually matters? Doesn't it make far more sense at this point in our lives that the problem goes all the way down to the bottom? That it is at the deepest parts of who we are. But here's the thing, we will never face the reality and the depth of our sin if we aren't sure about grace. It's easier to just ignore it, to blame other people, to explain it away, because to face the reality of our brokenness without any promise of grace or hope or salvation is death. It would crush us. So be assured, Christ died for your sin. Every moment of sin in your life has been paid for by Christ's death. Be assured that there is no confession that you can make that can outpace God's grace. None. Be assured he died for your sin and he rose again to conquer your sin, to overcome the source of your sin. So it's not just paid for, but there is now power to no longer live in it. Be assured so that we can be quick to confess, quick to repent, quick to own, quick to answer the question, what's underneath that and what's underneath that so that we would find the very root of it so that God's grace can be applied at the root of the problem and therefore change the whole situation. Okay, let's answer a few questions. Um, got a bunch of questions, which is great. And these are really good ones. So, um, uh, I won't be able to answer all of them, but we do answer them on Instagram. Uh, I do Instagrams uh, something, and, uh, and uh, we post those uh, early in the week. So uh, if you can get on there, and, and I'll answer more of these questions. So all right, number one, 
Um, your comments on coming to God for anything other than himself seem pretty contrary to the view of Christian hedonism. Not that that's soundproof or canon by any means, but I didn't understand from what you said why it's bad to come to God for his qualities, namely life, since he is uh, the only source of it. Why is that bad? Isn't people seeking life only found in God a way for them to find the only source of that life, which can lead to them uh, learning about the character of God, eventually seeking him directly? Okay, great question. Um, and uh, Christian hedonism is a phrase that uh, John Piper uh, popularized, if not invented. And so a uh, big fan of, of Piper, and, a big, uh, and, and I've read just about everything he's written. So I can speak to this with some level of uh, uh, certainty. Here's the difference. Um, Piper wrote books called Desiring God, Enjoying God, right? Piper's argument is always that the greatest joy and the greatest life is in God himself. So this is like Piper's whole message, and I'm only using Piper, not the Bible, because uh, this is what Christian Edenism argues, is that we come to God for God, and in God we find life. We find joy, we find peace, we find these things, but only when we come to God for God, right? So his, his kind of famous line, I'm gonna paraphrase it because I don't have it memorized, but his famous line is like, our greatest joy, the greatest human flourishing is to enjoy God forever, like enjoy him. So it's, it, it, it can get semantical at times, but the idea is when we go to God for things all the time, rather than go to God for God, we're missing the source. We're missing the means by which we will actually uh, enjoy life. Life, the eternal abundant life that he promises is in the relationship with him. It's not separate from him. It's not something he doles out like a ticket where it like blesses us with life. That abundant life is life in him and with him, okay? So oftentimes we go to him for another thing when that thing that we want is him, okay? So we go to him for peace as if peace is something that he gives us separate from being with him, but peace comes from being with him. We, we don't have to fear when we are in his presence because he is God. He doesn't, doesn't just give us a tool. Like it, uh, my, my daughter has been getting scared at night all the time. Uh, and, and I want to tell her to, you know, give her, give her ways in which to kind of combat her fear. It would be the difference between saying, hey, go to God for a gun to protect yourself from the bad guys. Because she's worried about bad guys. I don't know who these bad guys are. It's probably some of you. But she goes, she's afraid of the bad guys. So the difference between going like, go to God to get something to protect yourself from the bad guys, rather than saying, go to God. He is your protection. He is what will keep the bad guys away, right? So it's, it, it can seem like semantics, but it's really, really important because all of the things that we would go to God for, we find in him. So uh, I, I don't know if that answers the question. We're gonna keep it. <laughs> I'm just saying the same thing over and over now. Okay. Uh, when talking to people about your faith, is it wrong to emphasize grace or seriousness of sin depending on the person's background? For example, modern day woman at the well versus modern day Pharisee. I work with people who deeply believe they are messed up, but I also know those who believe they are truly and genuinely good. Now, let's just get practical. Can you say two things at the same time? No, you cannot say two things at the same time. You have to say one thing first and then another thing second. So, right? Just practically. 
you following me here? Do you guys have the ability to say two things at the same time? Let's talk, okay? You don't. So yes, at a practical level, you have to wisely and led by the Spirit choose where to begin the conversation, but we have to work to hold those two things in tension. The person who knows that they are messed up, uh, yes, they need to hear about the grace of God and in the grace of God, your affirmation of the truth that they are super messed up, right? So they go, man, I'm a mess. This is a disaster. And you go, yes, you are. That's why you need the grace of God. Or someone who thinks they're very, very good, like, yes, you're going to lead with, well, let's talk about your messed upness, right? The seriousness with which we should deal with sin. So yes, always we're going to have to say one thing before the other, but we need to be able to hold those, both of those things in tension for all people because the person who knows they're messed up needs the grace of God. The person who thinks they're great needs the grace of God. It's not different. It's all in what, the only difference is how they see themselves, okay? What they need is not fundamentally different. Thanks for listening. For more information and podcast episodes, head to iconchurch.org.